podcast one production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, welcome. We've got a really interesting conversation coming up with Lyndall Kampfer, the media director at L'Oreal Australia and New Zealand. Lyndall's been around the world this year at a big conference for L'Oreal media directors in Berlin. She's done a massive media study on what works in video and television. We're going to talk about uh, millennials, pesky millennials and what they're doing in beauty uh, and influences. And that one will be interesting too. So welcome, Lyndall. First up, let's just get to what you've been up to around this, working out what media works, how television works, how YouTube, Facebook, what are you up to with your media mix, your channel mix? You've got some new learnings. Yep, we've got some new learnings. What the difficulties are that I'm finding at the moment is, what is the right media mix? How much TV, how much video, um, what should what should we be looking at in terms of the correct media mix so that we can recalibrate it uh, and, and kind of make it work and drive our sales? So one of my questions that I had was, should at the moment we have what we call a screens strategy, right? right. And what that means is we look at every Everything that we run video on, and I include TV, so linear TV, BVOD or catch-up TV as some of us like to call it, um, YouTube and a couple of the other uh, video channels. But really, what is the right combination um, of, of, in terms of using those three? Uh, our agency, Cara, had told us that what we should be doing is YouTube plus a couple of other video channels and TV. And I thought, well, what about Facebook? Because all my research learnings had indicated that Facebook and TV work really well together. There's a synergy between, a very strong synergy between the two. So my question to um, Millwood Brown Cantor, who did this research for us, was how does Facebook fit into the screen strategy or the video strategy? And so we had a look at it. We put 60% in a nutshell. We put 60% of our video budget into into linear TV and then 20% into YouTube and 20% of it into Facebook. Well, the results were quite surprising to all of us, including my mark, our marketing teams. And this was done, what, earlier this year? This Lindell? was done. We just got the results. Just got it's it hot now. off the press. Fresh, so it's about two weeks ago we, right got, the, we got the results. The actual work started in about August, September. And we did it on one of our campaigns aimed at women 18 to 54. So what we did, what our media strategy was, was buy TV 25 to 54 because it's too expensive to buy 18 to 54. And then try and reach the younger end with YouTube, Facebook slash Instagram. So when I say Facebook, I mean kind of that social media, the holding company. And what we discovered was, was that TV still provides the highest unique reach. It was about 24% unique reach. Second of all was Facebook and Instagram, but mainly Instagram, which, was, uh, which had a reach of about 17%. The interesting thing was, was that YouTube, which we thought was a reach driver, only provided a 3.7% unique reach. Right. So that made us really think um, about the role that we've been using YouTube for, because what this said to me was is that maybe there are not that many people who are on YouTube, but when they are on, they're heavy users. Right. So what that's done is we've now recalibrated um, our 
our media mix. So TV is still very strong or pivotal, I should say, because it creates that synergy with the digital um, channels and makes them work better. Right. So better than on their own. So TV is still pivotal to all our campaigns, but more of a focus on Facebook and a slightly less focus on YouTube. Now, let's get slightly technical for a moment. There's been lots of conversation around uh, whether one second, two seconds is enough for a, an exposure on Facebook or on Instagram, so the video stuff you're getting. Is it a completed view? How do you define the viewer? You, you remember we've had that great debate a, f- a few years ago about right. you know two seconds in, in social, two seconds, sound off, one pixel, and, and you've got a view. So is that the, what, what are your measurements for that? The way that I believe it works is that TV provides that much stronger audio visual and Facebook works well in the synergy because it acts as that reminder. Right. And the other thing that we keep forgetting and uh, is that our concentration spans have changed. So we've actually got a concentration span at the moment which is apparently less than a goldfish. Right. Goldfish is nine seconds. We're eight seconds. So we should finish the podcast now, do you think? No, no, I'm enjoying <laughs> this. I'm having such fun about this. But I think Gen Z, I was told by my American colleagues, attention span of Gen Z is three seconds. So whilst you can't really tell that much of a story in three seconds, you can certainly get recognition through. Right. And that's the role that social media played in this study was in consideration. Right. Brand awareness uh, is still being driven by TV. Now, interestingly, um, we referred to it earlier. You were in Berlin in uh, March or April this year talking to, what, 100, yep. 100 media colleagues in L'Oreal around the world in, your, in, in the same role. The findings, obviously, they've just come out, but are they, what are other markets finding and seeing? Where are you, where are you getting the learnings from, from that conference? What comes out of it? Well, the learnings are that they found that they use TV and digital always in combination. So that was one of the things that uh, was underpinned in the study that I did. And the other learnings that we found is that they're moving quite a, they've moved quite a lot into programmatic in the US yes. particularly. And the other interesting thing is, is in Canada as well, a lot of it has moved in-house. So they've mm. taken the programmatic buying in-house, which is something we haven't really considered in Australia yet. Um, we're just starting our foray into programmatic and next year is going to be the first time. But what we're going to do is we're going to develop a, pro- a L'Oreal private marketplace. So we're, right. going to, we're not going to say to the agency, yep, you can pick any URL that you want or website. We're going to say these are the only websites you can use. So that was one of the learnings that we got from that. Another learning was the technology that they're using in other markets, which we've now deployed in Australia, which is allowing us efficiencies in how we buy on YouTube and other video. Right. This in-house project that you're talking about, that means you'll have a programmatic desk running inside L'Oreal here in Australia, or is it it a hybrid model with Cara? What we think we might do is we'll start off with a hybrid model with Cara, and then as more of our spend, I guess, moves into digital, then we'll probably move it in-house. There's a lot of discussion, uh, Lyndall, about this tension between long-term and short-term brand building and short-term performance. You'll be facing that like everyone else. How are you uh, really managing that? What are oh, you doing? Oh, it's really hard. And actually, Paul, it was a big topic at our Berlin conference. We have a global CMO for our mass market division. By mass market, I mean Maybelline, Garnier and L'Oreal Paris. 
And she was saying that we have to keep that balance between short-term sales focus and then the long-term brand building. And it's really hard because we get driven in terms of driving sales and producing annual profits for shareholders. And so whilst we're trying to do both, look, the way I look at it is TV still produces long-term branding. Because when we run strong um, uh, multi-touch sort of channels or touch points, if I can call it that, we definitely see an uplift in our uh, brand equity because we measure our brand equity ongoing every month to see how we're tracking in relation to our competitors. And we definitely see an uplift when we have a strong multi, multi-touch um, campaign. What I mean by multi-touch, TV, digital, outdoor, maybe magazines, maybe cinema or radio in as well. And we're starting now to experiment with podcasting. You're doing okay. I know, You're that's what I thought. experimenting now. Well, and it does get us to what is going on in the business of beauty and cosmetics. And there is some big, big challenges that, that your business, all the, the mainstream players are essentially facing at the moment. There's the rise of, probably not dissimilar to uh, what we're seeing in, in, in beer, the boutique, the craft beers. We, I think you're seeing this rise of boutique and craft um, beauty brands. Tell us a little bit what's going oh, on absolutely. there. Absolutely. And we don't call them craft. We call them indie Right. right for independent uh, brands, so it's kind of, and um, that's having a huge impact um, on our business right across the board in terms of makeup or cosmetics. It's brands like Fenty, which is Rihanna. It's the Kylie Kylie Jenner brands, and everybody at the moment influencers and well known women or people because Jeffrey Star is another influencer who's done particularly well with his brand. Um, seem to be moving into this area, which ten years ago was predominantly held by the big, by the big multi, you know, big multinationals like ourselves and Coty, etc. And they sort of now moving in, and that's where those pesky millennials are going to buy their their products, and they have huge followings. Right, Jeffrey Star, I think, has got about a fifteen million following. Right, did, did you see it coming? Yeah, we we did, but I think we didn't didn't realize the that um the impact that it would have, and the and the benefit of these indie brands is that they have what we would call agility. Right. So they able to um, first of all the the uh, influencers who start the brands are able to go to market much quicker than we can. Look. We've re- responded well to it. We've taken our turnaround time on new brands from two years down to nine months in right. South Korea. So it's made us um, sharpen our game in terms of how quickly we go to market. But they go to market really, really quickly, and they are setting the trends. Right. And so the millennials and Gen Z now coming up, they're the ones who want whatever's trendy. But the big thing with um, cosmetics ex- is experiential. Because everything I read, Paul, says people research online and then they go into brick and mortar to purchase. And they go in and they like to play and they like to be assisted. So Mecca Cosmetica seems to have a really good recipe in Sephora where they have people helping you when you go in. 
and which makes it hard for us in the, our mass market brands. So in supermarkets and the big um, pharmacy chains yes. and so forth. Yes, and so what L'Oreal did, because one of the things, and I'm probably going to ramble on here a little bit, is we bought a Canadian company a couple of years ago called Modi Face. It looks at all the angles of your face, recreates your face really quickly, and it allows you then to try on makeup. And it comes in a sort of a standing mirror, sort of one that like a desk mirror that you can have in a retail outlet. And there's one here at Chemist Warehouse, actually, that you can go and you can try on different mascaras. You can try on eyeshadow. You can try on lipsticks and you can see what they look like. Now, this Modi face, I don't know if you remember the movie Benjamin Button. Yes. These people were responsible. These people, the sort of scientists behind the development of Modi Face were responsible for the for the aging of Benjamin Button uh-huh. or the unaging of Benjamin Button. So you can see their technology yeah. is quite advanced. And this is like a beauty tech play, if you like, rather than fintech, it's beauty Absolutely. tech. Absolutely. Is this all aimed at trying to uh, get some traction with, with, with the younger crowd, with the millennial set, or is it... What? Absolutely. What right. we're trying to do, where we don't have, where our cost structure doesn't allow for our beauty advisors, like, you know, Lancome, Giorgio Armani and Yves Saint Laurent, where you have beauty advisors you can ask for advice we're trying to help people who are going into a supermarket or for example chemist warehouse to assist them in their purchasing we're also doing it online so right. that people can experiment. So you can go onto our websites and they're on our, it's on our, Modiface is on our websites in Australia. You just can't purchase from there at the moment, but we're looking at that for the future. I think you said earlier though that the millennials aren't even going into supermarkets or even the, the pharmacy chains like Chemist Warehouse, which is a big part of your business, right? They're not even going in there to shop. This is, this is the, the great dilemma that um, established brands have. Um, and so how are you dealing with that, with your distribution? It's really hard. So we've started, just, we, we obviously distribute through Sephora. Uh, quite a few of our brands, are, our Lux brands are in Sephora. And we're distributing through Mecca Cosmetica, quite right. a few of our Lux brands. Um, and then there's, a, there's an online beauty site called Adore Beauty. And we're doing some of our, all of our Lux brands, but also some of what I would call our mass market brands, like L'Oreal Paris uh, and Maybelline. And Adore Beauty seems to be doing pretty well. And then next year, we're looking at opening a store on eBay. Okay, right. In, for, in Australia. In Australia. Gotcha. It's definitely Australian eBay. It's right. huge in this market. Okay. So if I had to sort of show you a graph, you'd see that eBay is about 20 times bigger than Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, it's for, huge. For your business? It's across all businesses, right. but for our business as well. Okay, you mentioned we talked a little bit about uh, influencers earlier. Now, um, clearly they're, in terms of the indie brands you talk about, they're having some, some impact there. How is L'Oreal using influencers? We've had this discussion and debate globally for the last year or two about influencer fraud. How do you measure influencers? The buying of likes and followers, and so therefore, is the actual audience they've got um, what it is? Is it what it looks like? It is on the on the tin. It says it on the tin. How are you using influencers, and do they have a role? We definitely think that influencers have a role. People locally, I'm talking about now, resonate or relate to, should I say, to a lot of the influencers and therefore provides a predisposition towards some of our brands. More so than celebrities, I think you say too. Far far more so than celebrities. You know, we have celebrities in L'Oreal Paris in our advertising for L'Oreal Paris. But what we found when we do digital campaigns locally and we run a sort of global 
celebrity, and I don't want to say Jane Fonda because she does particularly well with the Australian market, but yeah. and so does Eva Longoria, interestingly enough. But we find that when we have a look at brand uplift studies and we measure view-through rates on our video as a form of engagement, we see that local influencers, there are a couple in particular that really resonate with the local market. And one that really comes to mind, which surprised me when we got some research on it, was Carrie Bickmore. Right. You know, because she used, she used to be our spokesmodel for Garnier, and she still does really well with millennials. It's still holding. Still holding. Right. But look, it is hard. It's hard uh, in terms of the fraud. We try and use um, the tech companies like Sprinkler and um, another one called Popular Chips that tries to look at the followers. And if we see there's an awful lot of followers coming from Argentina, then we realize that there's something um, quite wrong. What we will be doing next year is we're actually going to be using our influencers with sort of affiliate marketing is to click to buy. Right. And and that will give us an idea, a far stronger idea of whether it's working or not. But I feel like we almost, you know, nothing is risk adverse anymore. You know, nothing is without risk anymore. Mm. There's brand safety issues across all sorts of digital channels. And so I think that the merits of using influencers outweigh the disadvantages of using them. We're very careful. We've got a, we've got a, got one person in our head office who's dedicated to monitoring the influencers, and we make them sign contracts. We don't do any work without an influencer hasn't signed a contract. The other thing that I think is interesting you talked about is that again in the global debate and even in Australia, the the pressure that's on the CMO and the marketing team to deliver, and the, there's pressure on whether they where they are delivering, how are they delivering into the into the business, um, rather than the conversations that the industry might have around brand equity and and uh, all the brand health. Uh, studies and scores that we that we track. L'Oreal has a marketing culture. You don't have the pressure like some of the big companies do on on the marketing on the marketing function. Tell us a little bit about that. We're really lucky because we strongly, and it comes from the top down from our global CEO, Jean-Paul Agon, that we believe in marketing. So we don't have to have two different interpretations of the language that we use. We know that when we run a campaign, we can see sales uplifts and we can see immediate impact on our brand equity. So it, our biggest our biggest thing is just is, is having enough sales because our marketing costs are built into sales. So the more we sell, the more we invest in media. And it's just, it's just a, non, it's not a non-conversation. We just know that marketing drives our brands. So, and there's no pressure in budgets? What, what is happening to your budget? Well, the issues are if we don't get the sales, Paul, because our marketing budgets are linked to the sales. So where we're experiencing decreases in budget, we are having budget cuts, but it's not because we don't believe in marketing, is we still have to deliver right. a profit amount of money. And that's where the, the, the balance between the short-term sales and the long-term brand equity comes in. Mm. And this is the unfortunate part, sometimes short-term sales kind of kicks in. And even the marketing team's incentivized to go for sales now because it affects your budget for the next year. And the marketing people are KPI'd 
on achieving their sales forecasts. What is the formula there for your, your link between marketing and sales? There's a, typically it sort of ranges between 8 and 12%. Um, you know, for other companies, sometimes it goes down to 5 I'll or 3. To, I'll have to get – I can't remember off the top of my head, but that sort of 10 to 12% kind of rings a bell. Right. And we also invest heavily in trade marketing. So the bulk of our budget is actually in trade marketing. With the, like in, in store? Catalogs, in right. store. In store. But I want to tell you something really interesting is that we did a touch point study, a consumer touch point study, and the strongest touch points that came out were in store, packaging, um, those sorts of things. And so in Australia, we decided on Maybelline to cut back some of the media budget and invest it into in store. And we did not see an increase in sales, but in Europe, they did. Is that right? Yep. In what Europe, is going did. on there? How did, so how did you post-rationalise that one? Well, the way I look at it, and this is my personal opinion, is that I think we're always looking for a bargain. And so we don't mind what environment we shop in. Maybe our cousins in Europe are, you know, don't mind, you know, are more fussy about where they shop um, or, or the look. But if you go into a chemist warehouse, for example, I mean, they're doing so well. Well, I was going to say, it's a big part of your business, chemist warehouse, Yeah, right? it's yeah. a big, they're a big partner of ours. And this is this is where you say people are doing their research and they're just going into the store where they um, are going to get the best price. The millennials aren't doing that, though. They're not going to chemist Well, warehouse. we're going to test something next year. We're launching a new product under our Lancome umbrella, which is upmarket brand, a more expensive brand. And we're launching a fragrance which is going to be called Idol, and it is aimed specifically at millennials, and it's going to be available in Chemist Warehouse. Right. And But the great thing about this is it's refillable. Right. And, you know, millennials are all about sustainability. Right. And, and they're flocking to natural products too, right? And so they're absolutely flocking to natural products. Mm. They're flocking to where it's organic, particularly organic, or even if you're cast under natural. Um, and that's a bit of a challenge for us, having always been built on research and development. So, listen, it's a great conversation. We, we need to wrap it up for our um, Goldfish Bowl uh, audience, um, which probably we've expanded their, their attention span here with this one, uh, Lyndall. <laughs> but can I just get you, before you go on, your sense for 2020, the media market, the advertising market's doing it rather tough at the moment. Mm. What's your take on what's going on in media and digital and your spend in the market at large is essentially feeling somewhat crimped. What's your take for 2020? My take for 2020 is our budgets and I'm sure the market's budgets are going to remain static. I think the expectations that are going to come from our boards is going to be on finding efficiencies in media um, the difficulties are going to be offsetting costs that come through um, in terms of TV because, you know, they, when you buy TV, it's expensive now, um, far more expensive than it used to be. And what we're having to do because of the de- some of the declining audiences on TV for the younger end of the market is build um, a media mix around that declining audience, which is making it that much more expensive. So bottom line, fewer campaigns, which is what we're looking at. We're calling it sort of fewer, better, bigger, um, and far more multi-touch uh, uh, campaigns so that and, and we find that we get a much bigger sales uplift if we have a multi-touch approach and so instead of having 56 campaigns you may laugh yep we've had 56 campaigns in a year we're probably in australia, get, in australia right. absolutely in australia um it's probably going to be condensed into fewer 
but more multi-touch points, and we believe that's the way to go. Finally, the the brands in focus for L'Oreal next year. What are you? Oh, doing? we've got our our categories. We've got two categories that we focus on particularly. One is skincare, yeah. which is which is growing. Um, when I say dramatically, I think the market's growing by about six percent. And cosmetics. Cosmetics is the one area that we've been affected in. The whole market's been affected by kind of like a decline in cosmetics. So women aren't purchasing as many cosmetics as they used to. Mm. Say three or four years ago, there was an explosion in cosmetics and now it's shifted slightly down and now people are more concerned about their skincare. Right, so they're swapping out. Correct. Right. That's what I'm doing. I've stopped um, buying as much cosmetics and I'm more skincare now too. Well, if you go to South Korea, 20% of men wear makeup. Is that right? Yep. See, I was just being, I was having a joke, but now we've found a trend. <laughs> and it's a lot of BB cream. Wow. Hey, so that's um, a great conversation. I look forward to maybe catching up um, in, in a few months to check up on those pesky millennials and what's going on in, in the world of cosmetics and beauty. Great to talk, Lyndall. Thanks for coming on. Thanks heaps, Paul. I've had fun with you. Ditto. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.